Hello, welcome to Overburden, the podcast for postal workers. I'm Kevin Hitchings. And I'm Brandy Hughes. Today we want to talk about the strike of 1981. I think 1965 is the only strike we've talked about so far, but eventually we'll cover many of them. Well, we did do a brief like rundown of the history of strikes of postal workers, but it was just like super like timeline brief. Yeah, also the history of being legislated back to work. That's yeah, I think we called that one legislate Strike, strike legislate, legislate repeat. repeat. Yeah. yeah. Right. I haven't come up with witty titles in a while. Um, of course, witty is debatable. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it, but yeah, okay. <laughs> um, I'm usually editing two in the morning on uh, Monday, so I'm not in a mood to be super witty. Okay, so um, 1981, one of the big demands by CUPW at that time was for uh, maternity leave. Um, and, uh, at that time we still had two separate unions. We had the LCUC, the letter carriers union, and then we had the CUPW for the inside workers and LCUC had actually requested the same kind of leave in their negotiations of the previous year and been denied. Yeah. There were MSCs recovered under them. I'm not sure who else. Yes. Um, there were some places where maternity leave was one uh, in the private sector. Nobody had ever really gone after it or won it in the public sector before. And this is something where CUPW decided to put their foot down. Yeah, up up until then, uh, since 1971, there had been uh, up to six months of unpaid leave, um, but there were, real, there were a lot of restrictions to get it and uh, the premiums that you got through unemployment insurance were really low. So it wasn't even comparable to your working wage. We tend to make our point even when we get legislative back. Like in 2015, I know pensions was the biggest thing, pension protection, still have our pension. So it's never good, of course, but uh, the fact that we're willing to take that route is, um, shows that we're not willing just to lie down. Right, and I think that that's... That's something that's been on people's minds a lot lately is that they want, they're, they're willing and they want to fight for, for more. And whenever we're legislated back, we always feel like we were kind of shortchanged, like we could have had more if, if the process had played out. Right. And uh, it's actually interesting that you brought that up because in 1981, uh, Trudeau Sr. was uh, Prime Minister and he took the approach that he was not legislating. He was just going to let it play out and let them negotiate. However, let the chips fall where they may kind of thing. Same thing Trudeau Current said. There's no way he's even considering legislating us back. And then when it came down, they put pressure on him. It took, what, two or three days of actual pressure to get him to switch, switch his mind. And obviously, he didn't write that legislation in three days. So, yeah, yeah he, <laughs> he was prepared to flip. So, super awesome. Um, so Canada Post back then was um, super sexist. A lot of work, <laughs> a lot of workplaces were. Um, I think I can't remember what year it was, but it was around that time where they were arguing about uh, wage discrimination, and the president, I'm not sure it was was it Moy Green or the one before, I can forget, said that it didn't matter if women get paid less because they're only doing it as a hobby, as a break from their normal housekeeping duties. Ridiculous. Yeah, I actually said that in the media. So that attitude, of course, is uh, right down to the work floor where the supervisors, of course, male-dominated, were super sexist. So the corporation did not take this as a serious issue. And and the stories of from women who were working at the post office in 1980 are, you know, that it was 
really unequal treatment of women at there and that honestly sexual harassment was rampant especially for management Great. and then the, the line from the trudeau government at the time pierre trudeau of course again is that if canada post agreed to pay maternity leave then everybody want maternity leave and the private sector would want maternity leave and then we'd have to pay all these women maternity leave um and it was a completely <laughs> economic argument it's like isn't yeah. that a good thing don't you want you know, people to be able to have children freely and kids to be raised freely and not have to suffer through poverty and have a good start. Like, it's all good things, but they just focused, like governments often do, on just the economics. What if this is too expensive? Right. Yeah. And they, well, and they often look at like the cost, but they don't see how it can um, stimulate different aspects of the economy because you think about it. If you're on, if you're staying home with your children and you're not making any money, you're, you know, making cuts to your daily life. You're just, you're living lean, you're living in austerity, essentially, no matter what you're, if you are lucky enough to have a spouse who's still working, no matter what your spouse is making, you're still adjusting to making less if you're used to working. So, um, and you know, I see it even today that like women who have, uh, maternity leave benefits that are above the basics that EI provides, they tend to do more. They go out and they shop. They buy things for their babies. They buy things for their friends. They they buy things for themselves. They go out for lunch because they can. It's easy you know? to overlook in Canada too because healthcare is mostly free. Um, basic healthcare, obviously not dental, not drug plans like they should be. But um, healthcare is freaking expensive. Mm-hmm. And if you can't afford to give your kid a good start, a good healthy start, it puts a burden on the uh, healthcare system later on as well. Well, and especially um, when you look at transitioning babies to solid foods and stuff, like being able to buy healthy, fresh food rather than just, you know, whatever you can scrounge up can make a huge difference in the outcomes for that child's long-term um, health and well-being. So the policy at the time was that women could take up to six months leave, but it had to be unpaid. Right. Um, so again, if you have a partner that makes lots of money, if you have tons of savings, like every postal worker obviously does, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm just rolling in the savings. Yeah, <laughs> since that's rarely the case. Wait, um, did you say savings or debt? Yeah, <laughs> easily six months worth of debt. What's scary is, uh, just an aside, in the U.S., I believe it's three weeks or three months. I think it's three weeks of unpaid leave is all you get from maternity in the U.S. still. Don't move the papers. Uh, yeah, there's no paid. Yeah, none paid. I think it's, it's either three weeks or three months of uh, totally unpaid. The only justification I've ever heard from that is, well, if your employer wants to pay you, they still can. There's nothing barring them from paying you because yeah. every employer is going to gladly pay you more when they don't have to. Right, right. When you're not at work. So just ridiculous. Um, so yeah, you could take six months unpaid time if you want. Um, the union took a very public approach at the time. This is not something we fought alone. It's something we're kind of doing now with the DCOPO, um, reaching out to other groups as much as we can, uh, just trying to educate the public as much as you can. Um, get as many people involved as possible. Uh, just alliances with, with women's group mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of public education. I'm not sure how they went about it this time or that time. I know in the past I've done some trade shows and stuff with DCOPO myself here to get the word out there. Um, 
and people do listen. It's it's funny though because I, when I was reading that and they were talking about the alliance, especially with the National Action Committee on the status of women, and I was thinking to myself, why are we not doing this now to fight for universal childcare? You know, because I don't know a parent who wouldn't love to have affordable childcare. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> one of the things Trudeau was just in the last week has really been pushing in the media, or at least. Yeah. The Liberals like to, to feel things out in the media and see how the public reacts. But I know the Canadian Labour con- Congress has been pushing for that one pretty good. But uh, I think that's going to be an election issue. We'll, we'll see what comes up. I hope so. But, I, I mean, I do recognize that it's a difficult thing because um, there are already systems in place in some provinces, uh, Quebec notably, with their $7 a day childcare. Um, but also every family is a little bit different and has different needs as far as what hours the parents work or how many hours they work or yeah. what what kind of care like how many and and whether their kids have special needs or anything like that so like it is a complicated issue and trying to make one nation nationwide system that works for everyone is really challenging well, fe- i do recognize that the federal government is negotiating with the provinces right now they've got deals with most of the provinces Alberta is the big sticking point from what I hear. And of course, anytime uh, you know the opposition uh, provinces, certified ones in this case, are all being a bit of a pain, including Saskatchewan, of course. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have concerns about it being, um, even if the federal government is funding it, I do have major concerns about provincial governments implementing it because I'm sorry, but our provincial government has proven time and again that they don't give a crap about the little working people. No, so. they, they, <laughs> they mismanage, throw money away, and then and just sell off uh, assets and sometimes profitable assets to cover their butts, which is... Right. But anyway, politics is not That's what we're into this topic. time. <laughs> Maybe next week. <laughs> Maybe next week. So in 1971, they had some um, unemployment insurance reforms because uh, it was still called unemployment then. And they did have some maternity leave in there, but the eligibility was very restrictive. It says the premiums were low. I think they mean the payouts were low. Yeah. Yeah. That was my understanding. So we're, we're doing this mostly, um, done some online reading and stuff. But this is mostly out of an article from the Briar Patch, which is a unionized magazine, which we should get more articles from, ideas from, actually. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Yeah, it's it comes out monthly, doesn't it, or is it quarterly? Uh, bi-monthly, every second month. Bi-monthly. Okay, yeah, but there's there's often really good, up-to-date, current issues in there, so yeah. that's something to check out. Look it up online. It's a good way to support the labor movement in general, to subscribe to it if you'd like to. But there's also copies at our local office if you're in Saskatoon you want to come take a look. Anyway, some unions in Quebec and Alberta had already won uh, EI top going to say EI because that's what it is now, EI top-ups, but uh, nobody took it nationally and nobody was really having the big impact. Like it was, the movement was starting to creep up. So 44% of the employees at the time were women, right. but but uh, support for maternity leave was far from unanimous. Um, right. Pretty much every workforce was divided on it. The A lot of the men said, well, why are we fighting for a benefit that only helps half of us? Which is odd because it takes both of them to make the baby in the first place and right. they share the income in most cases so it seems odd and uh a lot of the the women and I, I was actually alive at this time young but i remember people saying well what's the point because you know we didn't have this and we're fine so some of the women that right. already had their kids 
I guess felt a little resentful about it which uh I still ran into that when I had my kids I remember asking some of the older members about it and they were like we didn't have that when I made babies you're lucky you know I've even heard heard about that uh in the last uh two contracts when I ask people about the pension they say well I don't care because I'm going to retire in a year and the pension is going to be there for me so I don't care about protecting it well in 2015 they tried to go after the pension of retired workers but so it does affect you and even if it didn't the idea of unionism is they support you, you support, right. they support you, yeah. you support them. You know, the, it's the rising tide. So it just baffles me when people come up with these very <laughs> selfish arguments. Well, and you know? like those men who were, or older women who were against maternity leave, it's like, well, do you not have a spouse who might want to take maternity leave? Or do, do you maybe have a daughter or a sister or well, someone else you... who might be really helped? And it might make the difference between them being able to have kids and financially survive or not. Well, if you have a daughter, don't you want them to have kids at some point? Or even a son, don't you want their, you know, him and, not to be financially harmed when his wife goes off work? And if you do have that daughter, do you not want her to be independent so that she doesn't have to rely on someone else's income? Anyway, I don't think we have to convince too many people that maternity leave is a good thing. But uh, yeah, these arguments um, at that time did exist uh, with both genders that it was just you know, an expensive thing that, you know, doesn't benefit me directly, so why? And it was a lot of division, um, which, of course, the corporation loves. They're always looking to create division. Um, I actually ran into an interesting uh, write-up by some women who are teaching a women and gender studies course, and they love. They said they love talking about the postal strike of 1981 because it, it um, helps to illustrate all of these things that were at play in the, in the fight for maternity leave. And um, they found it really interesting that at the time, all of the media presented it as greedy postal workers asking for free benefits, essentially, they, and, and, and holding the country hostage for what they termed fringe benefits. Um, but now, when you speak to most Canadians, they see paid maternity or parental leave as a basic right that all Canadians should be entitled to. So somewhere in the last 40 years, that mindset has changed. I'm not quite sure why, but I guess we've seen the benefits of it. So in June of 1981, CUPW had an 84% strike mandate. So 84% of the members supported striking. 23,000 postal workers walked off the floor. I think it's important to note, though, that 84% supported a strike, but not 84% necessarily wanted to strike over this particular issue. Oh, right. No, no. It's just, yeah, the standard that we do is, do you want to, do you support the strike or not? No matter what the issue is, I always find a lot of people that want to strike are always the more money people. <laughs> oh, really? They, they're willing to strike over money, but not other things? I love, in recent times, that's what I've found, yeah. There's always a few, sense. there's always a, a fair number of them. It's because we all have so much savings. <laughs> Um, so that began... You need uh, to buy another vault for all your money. <laughs> that began a 42-day strike. Um, it was estimated that it was costing $9 million per day in lost business across Canada. And in, in 1980 money. In 1980 money. And McLean's Magazine, uh, in an article written by Tony Whittingham in July of 1981, claimed that this strike caused an average of a thousand small businesses to be bankrupt every week. Yeah, McLean's was not very friendly to Canada Post back then. And the um, <laughs> Canadian Organization of Small Businesses, 
they're still in the news quite a bit and I don't understand how because they're the numbers they always throw out are so ridiculous there but they claimed we were going to lose 9,000 jobs a week if there was a strike yeah and the, the interesting thing is that like when Canada Post is on strike you'll often see like kind of pop-up uh, courier companies come in and you know they'll deliver the parcels and stuff they can't deliver the letter mail because that's mandated to be ours but they can't send out their invoices to get paid because those go through the mail <laughs> so they can provide the service with the parcels and stuff but they they can't actually get paid <laughs> well you can deliver letter mail but you have to charge three times the rate right. that Canada Post does so then as soon as Canada Post goes back to work, everyone goes back to sending their letters through Canada Post because it's so much more cost-effective, yep. especially if you're a bulk mailer. Um, so this strike also showed some division between the groups because, of course, the CUPW members are on strike and on the picket line. Meanwhile, the LCUC letter carriers and MSCs are still trying to come to work and do their jobs. And so there were lots of instances of the picket, the picketers blockading vehicles, laying down in front of trucks, having threats that they'd be run over. Um, it's kind of amazing that they managed to come together into one union later <laughs> when you think about it that way. <laughs> so after 42 days of strike, the government did concede and give us the, uh, the maternity leave. It was two weeks because that was your waiting period for, for UI. It was two weeks unpaid. So they gave us a full pay for those two, two weeks, weeks. Yeah. and then topped us up for 15 weeks after that, for a total of 17 weeks, which um, you think, you know, maybe they saw the light or whatever, but in 42 days at $9 million a day, that means this cost them, cost the economy $378 million. So I'm thinking they were doing a cost benefit analysis, just like the corporation <laughs> does now with everything. Like how much is this really going to cost us to put through? Right. And I, again, I think they saw the writing on the wall that it was coming eventually. Smaller units were winning this. Other countries had some good benefits at the time, even. Um, right. So uh, in 1980, there were actually a lot of countries that had benefits. Um, they kind of range from a few weeks, like some, uh, like uh, Belgium had eight weeks uh, where your job was protected and you were guaranteed eight weeks. Where can I go? France had 16 weeks uh, at 90% pay. Greece had 12 weeks at 66%. Um, the United Kingdom had six weeks at 90% plus another 12 weeks at a flat rate. Sweden had nine months at 100% plus three months at a flat rate. Portugal had three months at 100%. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of range. Netherlands, 12 weeks at 100%. And some of them even had parental leave or paternity leave. And um, there was one that had a full month of paternity leave in addition to the parental leave. Probably one of the Nordic countries there, always progressive. But again, this is, these are the numbers way back from the 80s. And yeah, this was in 1980. Like the U.S. still doesn't have any paid still leave. Still has none, yeah. It's ridiculous. Finland uh, in 1980 had 198 days of mat leave plus 24 days of parental leave and 12 days of paternity leave. That's pretty good. I'm not sure what we're up to now, but that's probably comparable. I'd have to convert the days in a month and stuff. Well, I mean, if we 
Yeah, I guess if you, well, if you add our parental in to our mat leave, then you get like the full year, right. actually up to 18 months now, but it's at last pay, right? Yeah, we've had some improvements since then, obviously. Uh, I think there's still a way to go. I think the first month should be both parents no matter what, because you need that time to spend with the baby. And, you know, anyone who's had a kid knows you're run ragged in that first month. Oh, yeah. And there's huge variability in that. Like some people are bedridden you know right. and so how are you supposed to look after a newborn while well, you can't even get out of bed <laughs> yeah so i think the first month both parents should get it regardless so the impact of this of course is that it was coming it was coming very very slowly in canada and the government was dead set against it ever getting into the going national or getting into the public sector public sector and we smashed that wall when they reformed the uh, the unemployment insurance, I think they wanted to put an end to it there. And, you know, a lot of times, even now, they will compare us to the United States. Less in health care uh, than we used to. But, you know, they will often, you know, look at the United States as the district to compare us by. And I could see them easily carrying that argument into the present day and into the next 30 years, too, or 40 years. And... If we hadn't broken that down, I think that maternity leave would be a niche to some small unions here and there. But I don't think it ever would have had um, a national program. I don't think it ever would have come into the the EI program universally as large as it is, as it is now. And uh, it's still something that's been brought up repeatedly. I remember one of the first educationals I went with with the Canadian Labour Con- uh, Congress I think I mentioned this before, the instructors stopped during introductions just to see how happy they were that CUPW was represented there and to thank us for everything we did for the union movement, but specifically for maternity leave, Mm -hmm. because we probably still wouldn't have it if it wasn't for this strike. Yeah. So Well, we won it in 1981. In 1982, QB, the Canadian Union of Public Employees, and PSAC, the Public Service Alliance of Canada, won it. And then by 1992, it was estimated that half of all unionized workers had paid mat leave. Yeah, that's one of the things, because PSAC and QP, they both have uh, people in Canada Post, mm-hmm. or representatives in Canada Post. Yeah, one union in Canada Post gets it, the other unions in Canada Post get it. And QP and PSAC both have large number of members outside of Canada Post, so then it just explodes out from there. Right. So um, having all these different unions in one corporation is really a great catalyst and makes us uh, well-positioned to cause larger change. Uh, there were some other changes that happened in 1981, just for some uh, historical reference. Uh, we also became a Crown Corporation, uh, that CUPW had lobbied for that because they hoped, this makes me laugh, that they hoped that it would put the union under the Canada Labour Code and make future labour mego- negotiations more straightforward. <laughs> also in 1981, in Quebec, it uh, became illegal for new taverns to only allow men. <laughs> so what? now women could drink in taverns. <laughs> I know, doesn't that blow your mind? 1981. <laughs> That's insane. Oh, but the old ones were grandfathered in. It was just ones that were established after 1979 that had to allow women. So you could still have an old boys club, but you couldn't make a new one. 
I wonder if that still holds up. I'm going to go to Quebec. I don't know. I haven't been to Quebec. But if you're in Quebec and you want to email us and let us know, overburdenpod at gmail.com, please. (laughs) I'm pretty sure women can drink in taverns there. (laughs) Well, I'm going to go drink alone in my office right now. I'm not going to come. You're not allowed. It's okay. It's it's a tavern. Um... (laughs) I just thought that was funny. Other things that were happening in 1981. So since then, a lot of other countries have drastically improved their maternity, parental, and paternity benefits. I think currently the front runner for length of time is Greece at 43 weeks at 49% of your pay. We get 52 at 55%. The first 17 is topped up. Oh, you're talking about federal. Okay, never mind. Yeah, or you can, yeah. Or you can extend it to 18 months now. Yeah, as far as getting 100% of your pay, you'd have to live in Luxembourg, Estonia, Poland, uh, Costa Rica, Spain, Slovenia, Israel, Germany, or Mexico or Portugal. Uh, Oh, or Croatia. Um, But those are less time. So those range from anywhere from six weeks to 30 weeks at 100%. It should be 100%. Um, I don't see any argument for re- reducing it because your costs are so much higher when you have a new kid. Oh my God! And your creamy diapers. And you're uh, <laughs> a lot of times you're getting debtor just from the start because you got to buy uh, if it's your first kid all kinds of things you've never had before cribs and car seats and yep. toys and if you have to be on formula that's a huge expense. Oh yeah. So to summarize, we put a lot of work. We mobilized the entire labor movement in on this fight to make it national. Um, and it's something that still has ramifications today that is a huge thing. And it's it's funny at the time how even a lot of our members didn't see the total benefit of it, but the social change it's brought to the country has been huge. Even the Trudeau government has extended it to 18 months and things like that, and they're still improving it. And all this never would have happened at all, or could never have happened at all, may have never happened at all, if it wasn't for... CUPW back in 1981.